The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 7. Probably a familiar text. And there we read in chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, for the truths that we sang and the songs that we sang about you, about us, Lord, about your blessed Son and the glorious plan of salvation. Help us, Lord, now to hear the word. Help me to preach it. Lord, by your Spirit, take the words and drive them into our hearts. And Lord, as we consider the the truths contained in in the Word of God, please move us. Lord, please encourage us. Please convict us. Lord, that we would love you with all of our hearts and live for you that way all of our lives. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. What do you think about Redeeming Grace Fellowship? How would you assess Redeeming Grace Fellowship? What do your friends and your family who do not attend this church think about this church? What do other churches in this area think about Redeeming Grace Fellowship? Uh, And these these are questions I think that are legitimate questions and are probably very helpful because you want to know what people think about your church. Because maybe you're weak in an area and you can't see it. Or maybe you're not ministering to people in the best way possible and that could help you. Or maybe there is something about this facility that makes people uncomfortable. But odds are, most of the people in this church think pretty well of this church. uh, And why shouldn't you? You have a terrific, young, gifted pastor who labors hard in the word. And you have godly, seasoned elders And you have faithful, committed people who have been faithful to the gospel for a long time. So it's no surprise that you would think well of this church. But the real question is, what does the head of the church think of Regreaming Grace Fellowship? What is Jesus' view of this church? If he were to write a letter to Redeeming Grace Fellowship, what would he say? Well, he did write a letter. He did write a letter to Redeeming Grace Fellowship and every other church throughout the whole New Testament era. And he did that when he wrote the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now the seven churches were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, 
Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And although they were seven literal churches uh, 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 in, in a place called Asia Minor, or which would, today would be called Turkey, they represented all churches for all time. And applicable, applicable for Redeeming Grace Fellowship and for Grace Baptist Church and every other church and so on, but also applicable for every single Christian. And what I would like to consider today is the first letter, which we just read, the letter to the church at Ephesus. And I would like to do so using a four-point outline. First point, the Lord of the church. The Lord commends the church. The Lord condemns the church. And fourthly, the Lord counsels the church. And so let's look at the Lord of the church in verse 1. And I'll read that again. To the church, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now this letter is written to the angel of the church at Ephesus. And there is some debate as to who the angel is. Some say the angel is an actual angelic being who has some kind of connection with the church and i.e. the church is as we go through the other six. And the reason they would claim that is because every other time the word angel is used in the book of Revelation, it means an angelic being. But the Greek word for angel is the same exact Greek word for messenger. And it is used seven times in the New Testament as a messenger. John the Baptist was a messenger. And I believe the word angel in the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 mean messenger, or more specifically, the pastors or the elders. Same thing. I mean, every epistle in the New Testament is written to men. So why would these seven letters be written to angelic beings concerning the church? Angels are ministering spirits. They are not church leaders. Now, the rest of verse 1 is a description of the one who dictates the letter, and that is Jesus himself. Uh, And we read that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, and that speaks to his honor, and that speaks to his authority. And he walks, he says, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 20, it tells us what the seven stars and the seven lampstands mean. There we read, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So the stars are the angels or the pastors and the elders and the lampstands are the churches, which I will speak more about the lampstand when I get to verse five. And these things tell us some stuff uh, and that there's important stuff to those churches and us as well. Right? They tell us that Jesus is the Lord of the church. He tell us that he is over the church. He owns the church because he's purchased the church with his blood. So it's not the pastor's church. It's not the people's church. It's Jesus' church. And he deeply cares about the church. And he provides for the church. And he protects the church so that no one or no thing can prevail against it. And Jesus walking in the midst of them tells us that he is present in the church. That he never leaves the church nor forsakes it. It also tells us he knows exactly what is going on in each church. So the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, as we read in Revelation 1.14. He sees everything, and he knows everything. So he starts off by telling them, the one with all authority, the one that they work for, has something to say to them. This leads us to the second point. He commends the church. Verses 2 and 3, and then verse 6. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. 
and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. All right, so the head of the church, uh, Jesus says, I know everything you do. I know what you think. I know how you operate. And then he's going to list seven good, seven wonderful things that they do. And one of them is repeated twice, which is patience. Uh, And let me tell you, this is a good church. This is a good church. Any church today would love to hear these seven things. We would love it. We would love to hear these seven things said about us from the head of the church. We would be overwhelmed if we received these kind of commendations. And so he says, I know your works. I know that you're a working church. I know that you're not a lazy church. I know that you are busy about my business. And I know you labor. I know your labor. And the word labor then means an intense labor. To labor with trouble and toil. To labor to the point of exhaustion. You see, it cost them something, and they were willing to pay it. This wasn't a Sunday morning only in and out crowd. They didn't just sit back, sing a couple of songs, get preached at, and go home. Right? This is not your church where 20% of the people did 80% of the work. This is not a church where only a handful of people came out to prayer meetings or Bible studies or evangelistic efforts. Right? Pastor Caleb gave you the charge this morning if you were here. Hand out those flyers, hand out those postcards inviting people to, to your service next Sunday. They were doing church. Right? Uh, this, is a body, this is a body of believers who put effort into the life and the work of the church. They're not lax. They're not bystanders. Right? They're not marginal people. They're not occasional attenders or occasional people who participate in the life of the church. Right? And the reality here is this. Jesus knows exactly what our works are. He knows. He knows what our labor is. He knows what we do. He knows what we don't do. He knows where our heart is. And it would behoove each of us to make sure that we are doing that which he would commend. That which he would commend. All right, so then I know your works. I know your labor. And he says, I know your patience. And patience means steadfastness, means endurance. So they don't give up. They don't give up when when the going gets tough. They don't throw in the towel when persecution or trials and troubles come their way. They don't stop proclaiming the gospel, even though it's pretty unpopular in some places. And we see an excellent example of labor, patience, work, labor, and patience with the saints in Thessalonica. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 3, says to them that when he prays, he remembers without ceasing, he says, their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The difference, though, between the Thessalonians and the Ephesians church in in Revelation chapter 2 is that their work and their labor and their patience was anchored in faith and love and hope. Well, the next commendation Jesus gives them is that they could not bear with those who were evil. And those who were evil literally means those of a bad nature, base, troublesome, destructive. So they refused to allow apostasy and immorality and godlessness to go on in the church. They refused it. They would not compromise with sin. They would not tolerate it for the sake of peace and harmony among the people. No, this was a church that practiced church discipline. They called sin, sin. They dealt with gossip. They dealt with sexual immorality. They dealt with divisive people. So they took sin seriously. Then he says, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. So they're very discerning. They're a discerning group. 
right? They don't just let anybody into their pulpit. Just because someone claimed to be something didn't mean anything to them at all. They weren't enamored with a man because of his knowledge of the scriptures or because he was a good speaker and pretty articulate. No, they tested men who claimed to be apostles or teachers or preachers. How did they do that? By God's word and by their lives. They took 1 John 4, 1 seriously, where it says not to believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. So they were very diligent. They were diligent people to protect the flock from error and from heresy. And this is one of the, one of the tasks of the elders of the church, right? To protect the people of God from error and from heresy. And Paul warned this very church some 40 years before of this in Acts 20, 29 and 30, when he was on his way down to go to Jerusalem, he meets the Ephesian elders. And he says this to them. He says, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So I said, listen, guys are going to come in from the outside and guys are going to be raised up from the inside who are going to sway you away, deceive you, and take you away from the things of God. Beware. And decades later, the Ephesian church, they're still taking this warning to heart. They're still bewaring and watching out and testing men. Well, then Jesus says, you have persevered, which means to bear with, to take up in order to carry. Uh, that means they continually brought the gospel to friends and foes. They continually anchored on the word of God. And they did all of this, Jesus says, for my name's sake. It was for his name's sake and not the pastor's namesake. It was for his namesake and not the denomination's namesake or the church's namesake. Everything they did from their works, their labor, their patience, and not bearing with those who were evil and testing false teachers, all of that was done for Jesus' namesake. You see, they knew that his honor and his glory and the advancement of his kingdom was at stake. So they were careful to be Christ-centered in all of those things. Well, then we read at the end of verse 3 that they did not become weary. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. They didn't throw, throw in a towel or grow weary in well-doing. Uh, they didn't grow weary uh, from turning the other cheek or from preaching the gospel, even though probably they might have seen very uh, little fruit from it at times. They didn't succumb to the disappointment that usually comes because of ingratitude and criticism and rebellion and lack of response even from within the church. And sadly, I personally know how easy it is to become weary in the labor. Well, then in verse 6, he gives the last commendation, and that is that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says he also hates. Um, we really don't know who these guys were, although there are many theories, and I'm not going to start giving you the theories, uh, but we do know this. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 15, the next church, the church of Pergamos, uh, we see that, that they had those who held to this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, uh, which Jesus hated again. So they allowed it in their church. They allowed it. The church of Pergamos allowed it. And many commentators see a connect between the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Uh, for, 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 for they are each named as a problem at the church of Pergamos, uh, which is why many believe, and it seems to make sense to me, that the deeds of the Nicolaitans uh, were the same as those who followed the doctrine of Balaam, which basically is idolatry, sexual immorality. Idolatry and sexual immorality. The late second century church father Irenaeus said this about the Nicolaitans. He said, they were without restraint 
in the indulgence of the flesh and practice fornication and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So the Nicolaitans basically were about loose living. And they used their Christian liberty as a license to sin. And Jesus said he hated that. Uh, And so does the Ephesian church. They hate that too. And he commends them for that. So they were a church that was serious. They were serious about the Christian life. They were serious about sound doctrine. They were serious about holy living. And they labored and they worked and they toiled and were patient and persevered and battled error and hated evil and sin in the camp. And I'm going to guess this is a church that doesn't spend a whole lot of time playing video games and hours a day on their cell phone and on social media and entertaining themselves to death and taking a ton of R&R. No, they were active and they were committed. They were sold out kingdom workers. But with all of that, and that's a lot, still there was something missing. And that leads us to the third point. The Lord condemns the church. Verse four, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Jesus says, you're a great church, model church. But then he says, nevertheless. And I can just imagine what it must have been like when this letter was being read for the first time to the, to the Ephesian church. How great they must have felt when he was rattling off those seven commendations, right? One after the other. And then all of a sudden, out of the clear blue, the word comes, nevertheless. It must have been like a dagger in the heart dagger in the heart. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. It's kind of like when you're a kid, and there's plenty of them here today, and you get your report card, and you see A+, plus, A+, plus, A+, plus, seven times in a row. And then all of a sudden, on the bottom of all of those A+, pluses is a D-, minus, and you're shocked. And this D- minus is a doozy. Right? It's not a D minus you're showing up late for service. It's not a D minus that your church website needs to be updated or you need to sing with more gusto. No, this D minus is you have left your first love. It's a big one. Now, there are three camps as to what this first love is. Some say the first love is evangelism. Right? You don't love the lost and have a passion to see the lost saved like you once did. So they say, well, there it is. It's evangelism. Some say the first love is your love for the brethren. So you don't love the brethren like you used to love the brethren. And some say the first love is Jesus. You don't love Jesus like you used to love Jesus. And I believe this is the one that's correct. Because first of all, and and seriously, if you're loving Jesus with everything, then you can't help but love the brethren, right? And, And quite honestly, you can't help but love the lost as well and want them to love him too. I mean, it would be awful difficult to be in love with Jesus and be cold towards his people and also to care less about the lost. Well, with that said, I want you to notice that they left their first love. They didn't lose their first love. And I know sometimes we say that we don't think about it. We just, oh, they, 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 left, they, they lost their first love. And it's important that they left their first love and didn't lose their first love uh, because you leave something intentionally, right? You leave something intentionally. You don't lose something intentionally. I don't intentionally lose my wallet. I don't intentionally lose credit cards or money. All right? You don't. So you do things or you don't do things which cause you to drift away from your love for Jesus. And this is amazing concerning this church because the Ephesian church looks like a church that is moved by love for Christ. It seems that way, right? And they once were. 
but not anymore. You see, the flame in their hearts has simmered. It's gone down. Even though they did many good things in his name, many great things in his name. See, they did a lot of work for him, but they weren't really, truly worshiping him anymore. They had now what was known as a cold orthodoxy. They labored out of obligation. They labored out of duty. They labored out of commitment, but not out of love for Christ. Their love for him didn't motivate those things like it once did. They did what Christians were supposed to do, and they did those things well. But a Christward motivation, a love for Christ motivation was missing. Maybe they became so familiar with the gospel, so familiar with the blood, the cross, so familiar with being saved and how he saved them, that it became like same old, same old. We say it all the time. We believe it. But we just keep saying it. Now their hearts aren't skipping a beat anymore. Now they're just on, you know, simmering through. So therefore, activity had replaced affection. And programs had replaced passion. And duty had replaced devotion. And now, Matthew 10.37 could no longer be said of them that they loved Jesus more than father and mother and sister and brother and son-in-law and daughter and all the rest. You see, there was a time, there was a time when they loved Christ above all. There was a time. And like Mary, they would sit at his feet, listening to him, gazing into his eyes, listening to him speak, mesmerized by his love, so to speak, at that time. But now they're like Martha. They're a doer, but they're doing out of duty and obligation. And you need to know this. Jesus doesn't want our works and our labor if they are not done out of love for him. He doesn't want them, right? He doesn't want your offering if it's not given with a heart of love toward him. So doing what is correct for the wrong reason or with the wrong motive is sin, is sin. To not love Christ above all and more than all is sin. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, a church has no reason being a church when she has no love within her heart or when love grows cold. Another man said it this way. When love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse. Well, how do we know if we've left our first love? And the question we need to ask even before that is, how do we describe this first love? And I would describe it as when your heart was first smitten with Christ. When you came to believe that he saved you and that he loved you and took away your sins. When you knew that at the cross, the handwriting of requirements of your sin was washed away, that his blood has cleansed you. And his unending love for you, the fact that he would love you that way, that won your heart. That won your heart. And you couldn't get enough of him. And he was always on your mind. And you couldn't wait to go to church, to sing about him, to hear about him, and then to talk about him later on with the saints. And, and, and you would get to church early so you could prepare your heart to meet with him. And you wouldn't miss a Bible study or a Sunday school or an evangelistic opportunity. And if the church was out sharing, well, you were out there with them. And you loved to pray to him. And you were constantly reading your Bible and marking it up and writing down questions to ask the more mature believers about those very things to see what they would say about what you saw in the Bible. And you delighted to read the Bible and you delighted to read good books about the Bible from men dead and alive. In a nutshell, you were consumed with Christ. You were consumed with him. 
And is this describing you? Is this how you are this day? Because if not, you've left your first love. How do you know that? How can you tell that? Well, some ways, your devotional life, sporadic at best. Meditating on the word of God, chewing on the word of God, don't have time. No longer pleasurable. You hardly pray like you used to. You don't come to church anticipating meeting with Jesus and hearing from him. Maybe you come just occasionally. Maybe oftentimes late. You don't go to Bible studies anymore, prayer meetings. Because you're busy. You're tired. You work hard. Maybe you think you don't need to because you know it already. What just doesn't excite you. Maybe you don't get excited about sharing the gospel with anybody anymore. doesn't get your juices flowing, sharing the truth with somebody. You don't fellowship with believers. You don't share your, your heart. You don't, you don't ask for accountability concerning sin. And Christ is not your best thought by day or night anymore. And if this is you, then odds are you've left your first love. And what you need is found in the next point. The fourth point. The Lord counsels the church. Here's the counsel to those of us who, have, who are not where we were at one time. <laughs> Verses 5 and 7. Remember therefore from where you have fallen... Repent and do the first works or else I will come quickly to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, Jesus condemns the Ephesian church for leaving their first love and then he gives them a remedy. Gives them a remedy or a solution, if you will. Uh, And the solution comes in three R's. Remember, Repent and return. Remember, repent and return. So remember from where you have fallen from. Remember what it was like when Christ was your first love. Remember when all that thrilled your soul was Jesus. Remember that. Remember when all you wanted was more of him. How you couldn't wait to open your Bible. How you couldn't wait to get on your knees and pray. Remember how you loved to listen to sermons and then to discuss them with brothers and sisters. Remember how you were hot to tell others about your first love. You may not have known a ton of gospel, a ton of Bible, but you knew enough, and you wanted others to know it too. Remember the thoughts you had of him when you were just laying in bed, thinking about him, thinking about God. Remember how you were moved in your soul when you sang the songs you sang, whether it be on a Sunday morning or in your car or anywhere else. You know, my whole Christian life, I've been whistling hymns. I whistle. I don't even know I do it. And when I'm not whistling, my wife gets worried because it means I'm not doing good. There's a spiritual problem. And she'll say to me, I haven't heard you whistle in two weeks. I got to think to myself, there might be a problem here. Maybe I'm weary. Maybe I'm trusting in the world. Maybe I'm not focused on the things of God. So remember Remember how far you have fallen. And listen, memory is a powerful tool. It's a powerful tool. That's why we're told to remember the Lord's body and his blood as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Remember it. That's why Jesus told his disciples, remember Lot's wife. Remember, listen guys, not everybody that says they're in the kingdom is in the kingdom. He said this right before he went to the cross. Remember, just because someone says they believe, they might really still be worldly. 
The prodigal son remembered. He remembered how well his father's servants were treated and, and how much food they had. And it moved him to repent of his sins and return to his father. So our memory is a powerful tool, especially when we remember how our hearts once were swelled up with love for Jesus when he first saved us. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? So look how far you have faded away from the love affair that you had with Jesus Christ and how cold your love has grown. And he says then, repent. Remember, and memory should lead us to repentance. Because not to love Jesus supremely, not to give him the throne of one's heart, that's sin. That's sin. To be doing lots of things for him, but not be passionate about him, that's sin. And it needs to be repented of. Which means we have to change our minds and our attitudes about leaving our first love. And you know, it's easy to think. It's easy to think what you do for Jesus equals loving Jesus. And I got to tell you, I'm the king of doing. I'm always doing a ton of stuff. And it's easy to think because I do all of this stuff, well, I love Jesus. It's easy to think that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. We condition ourselves to do things because it's the right thing. But our hearts could be cold. Our hearts could be told. And it's easy to be satisfied with what we do. Yet loving Christ can be absent from those very things that we do. So we need to repent and return and, and then do the first works. Return, do the first works. And the first works means basically do what you did when he was your first love. Do what you did when he was your first love. Nothing new here. You know, you know what it was like when, when he was your first love. Do that. Live that way. Think that way. Be those things. For some it means coming to church every Sunday. As simple as that. Coming early. Expecting to be blessed as you sing those songs, meditating on those words, and as you hear the word of God preached. For some it means getting out, sharing your faith, sharing your faith with people at work, people at school, guy down the block, person in your building, unsaved relatives. For some, it means listening to admonishments and rebukes and repenting. We need it. For some, it means setting a time, setting apart a time daily, every day, to read and pray. Listen, you will never grow in the things of God if you're not in the Word of God. And just to read and say, I did my chapter, I did my three, it really doesn't cut it. You've got to think on it, chew on it, meditate on it, let it mull it over. Let it be saturated in your mind. Ask a hundred questions. Play detective with the text. What does it say about God? What does the Bible say about me? Lord, am I this way? Am I not this way? Are these a, is this a promise? What does it mean? How do I own this promise? And on and on and on. And you know what that may mean? That may mean turning off the computer putting away the iPhone, right? And taking in the word of God, but whatever it is, do the first works again. Listen, we get bad habits. We grow into, we grow into bad patterns. Because here's the thing. If we don't remember, if we don't repent, if we don't return, he says, there's gonna be consequences. And the consequence, he says, will be that he will come quickly and remove the lampstand from them. Now I need to explain what the lampstand is. The lampstand was an article in the temple, in the holy place. And it was literally the only light source in the temple. 
And the priest would tend to it by filling it with oil and trimming its wicks. Uh, And so it would be continually burning, giving off light in the temple. And the picture here is this, is of Christ, who is our high priest, walking among the seven lampstands, right? Uh, As he is keeping them burning continually. But if they don't repent, if they don't do the first works, Jesus is going to remove the lampstand. And, And many commentators see this as Jesus will remove the church or the church will, will cease to exist. And not too far down the road, the, the Ephesian church was indeed taken away, as some of the other ones as well down the road. And I would agree to this to a point, but I think it's saying something much more. You see, I believe the loss of the lampstand ultimately means the loss of light. In other words, the lights are going to go out, right? Con Ed, I don't know if you guys get Con Ed out of here. Con Ed is going to come in, and they're going to shut the power off, and the place is going to go dark, so to speak. And, and what I mean by the, by the power source is gone is that the Holy Spirit is no longer in that place. There is no longer the Holy Spirit empowering the labor and the word and the work that's going on there. They may have a building. They may have lots of people. They may have lots of programs. They may have lots of money, but they don't have any Holy Spirit power. That's what they're missing. You see, the light of the gospel is gone. The power of the gospel, that is vacated. Therefore, no true conversions, no genuine holy living, no victory over sin. Instead, dead orthodoxy or lifeless activities or man-driven religion. So here it is, either revival or removal. Revival or removal. Well, then he says in verse 7, he closes with a promise or an encouragement. And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So he who is spiritually discerning, he who is spiritually sensitive, listen to what I've said and apply it. Now notice in verse 1, it is Christ who is talking to the church at Ephesus. And now in verse 7, it is the Holy Spirit who is talking to all of the churches. So the word of Christ and the word of the Spirit are one and the same. And what is written to one church is written to all churches and all believers for all time. Well then, Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There is some debate over who the overcomer is. Some say it is the more obedient Christian. Therefore, because they're more obedient, they get a better reward in the end. But I would disagree with that. I believe that every overcomer uh, is is a born-again believer. Right? Every, every, everyone who is a born-again believer is an overcomer. Why? Because John says so in his first epistle. 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, the gift of faith he's given us is what overcomes. And who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So all believers are overcomers in Christ. All believers overcome the world. And that's because Christ, who they are in, who they are in union with, has already overcome the world. Jesus said in John John 16, 33, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. And we overcome in him. And let us remember that that not everyone, not everyone at the church of Ephesus or in, in Redeeming Grace Fellowship or Grace Baptist Church or any other church for that matter, not everyone is a true believer. 
Jesus said that in the visible church or the local church, you would have wheat and you would have tares, or you would have believers and unbelievers. But in the end, he would sort all that out. He knows who's his. It's hard for us to tell. But he knows. So the overcomer is the Christian who is a conqueror in Christ. And Paul said so. In Romans 8, 37, he said, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And in Christ, we have overcome the world. We have overcome the penalty of sin. We have overcome Satan. We have overcome death and we have overcome hell. And the evidence that we are overcomers is that we persevere to the end. There's the evidence. And for those who are and do, they will eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And the tree of life is synonymous with eternal life or a continual feeding off of Christ for everlasting life. And all believers, all believers will have access to the tree of life in the next life. So says Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who, who, blessed are those who do his commandments, right? That they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. And, and this tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God, which is another way of saying heaven or where God is. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and one of the thief, thief says to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we know that when he gave up the ghost, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. His spirit went to paradise, heaven with the Father. His body went to the grave. Three days later, his body was resurrected, i.e., you know, Resurrection Sunday. That's what we're looking forward to. If you're a born-again believer, your spirit, your soul has already been resurrected. And on the last day when he comes back, if he doesn't come back while we're still here now, your body is going to be raised up. And like Jesus has a resurrected, glorified body and soul, you'll get one of those too. Something to look forward to. Something to look forward to. Well, let me close by saying that this letter is a critical warning to Redeeming Grace Fellowship, and particularly her elders, and I'm looking at you, and to all elders, that you not be a head and a hands and a feet church without any heart, without any heart, without your love for Christ driving the head and the hands and the feet. You need to have head and hands and feet, right? You can't just sit back and do nothing, right? We need to do the work of the ministry. We're, we're called to do it. We need to labor. We're servants. Servants serve, right? But it's got to be with a motivation of love for Christ. And as the body of Redeeming Christ Fellowship, you need to ask yourselves, have you left your first love? Is your love for Christ what moves your hearts to live the way you live and do what you do? So do you love him today like you loved him when he was your first love? And if the answer is yes, amen, and keep doing whatever you're doing. Keep doing those first works. Keep staying close. But if the answer is no, then Jesus says, remember, repent, and return. And I got to tell you, I don't think it's, it's very hard because you've already tasted how pleasurable it was to have Jesus fill your heart. If you know that already, then you want that again. Listen, when you eat like, when you eat like, like filet mignon, you want it again. You don't want to keep going back to sloppy joes. You want the filet mignon because you've tasted how good it is. When you've been abiding close to Christ and, and his love saturates you and it fills your heart and then you grow cold, you want that again, right? You know what it was like. You've been there. 
So remember what it was like when you first met him and when you first loved him and recognize that your heart has grown cold towards him and ask God to forgive you. And the fruit of that repentance is you'll do what you did when you first met him. And just imagine, imagine how God would be worshipped and Christ would be exalted at Redeeming Grace Fellowship if he becomes everyone's first love again. Imagine if everyone in this room, every single born-again believer, he was your first love. I'm telling you, this place would be, would be buzzing with, with love for Christ. You'd be like, like, like outdoing each other in, in humility and love and service and everything else. But if Christ has never been your first love, if you don't love him and you've never loved him and your heart has never beat for him, then the one who knows the hearts of all who are in this place, he knows your heart too. He knows your love for sin. He knows your love for pleasure. He knows your rejection and refusal of him. He knows your unwillingness to surrender to him. He knows that you stand and shake your fist at him and say, I'm not going to surrender to you. I will not have you to rule over me. He knows that. He knows that. And know that your sin has and will overcome you on the day of judgment. You will be overcome by your sin. But you don't have to be overcome by your sin. You too can be an overcomer in Christ. You too can overcome sin, the world, Satan, death, and hell. And you can only do that in Christ. But you must acknowledge your helpless and hopeless condition before God and seek for and cry out to Christ and plead that the blood that he shed at the cross would cover all of your sins. And if that is your sincere cry, then you can rest assured that he will do just that for you. And you too one day can eat from the tree of life. And you too one day will be in the paradise of God. But you must turn from your sin and surrender to the one who came to save sinners. What keeps you from it? What keeps you from it? Turn to Christ and be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the only reason we love you is because you have loved us. And we thank you that, Lord, because of your love for us, you sent your son into this world. Lord, to live a flawless, sinless life as a man and then to take upon himself the sins of all his people, to literally suffer our wrath of God on the cross so that, Lord, we would never be condemned and charged with those sins, but that we would be accepted in the beloved. Father, I pray for every dear saint in this room. Lord, I pray for us, Lord, please. Lord, I pray that our lives would be filled with love for you, Lord. May we do what we do. May we say what we say. May we live the way we live, driven by our love for you. And Lord, for the souls in this room that are not saved, that do not know the love of Christ, would you show them the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ? Would you show them the, just the, the terribleness of their sin, the great wrath to come because of it, but show them that you are a God who has loved sinners and made a way Uh, Lord, for the lost to be found in Christ. Would you save their souls, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.